And so I love people, but what I love more than anything is helping just ordinary, normal people to do extraordinary things. And I think business is an incredible venture to do that. So I, I wrote a book called Leading from the Back that was about being rubbish at things, right? I am not a good runner, and yet I built a global business around running, right? You just have to be where other people are and help them where they currently are. Alan Watts once said, what would you do if money was no object? If you could make a career out of doing what you enjoy? Julie Crefield is somebody who has done that on more than one occasion where she's had the rug taken out from beneath her and she's looked at what she's doing or has done that she's enjoyed and found a way to make a living out of that. Not just making a living, but also she's a survivor, a single mum who when the rug has been taken, when she's at the risk of losing everything she's got, she's found a way to survive. My name's Richard Osborne, and this is Drive, the small business podcast from UK Beer. Julie, it's lovely to meet you. Excited to be here. Uh, thank you. And <laughs> the, this is um, probably one of the quickest turnarounds we've had from speaking to somebody, reaching out to somebody, uh, and you being here. Uh, and it all started from a LinkedIn post, mm. uh, which my colleague Jacob uh, saw, reached out to. And what was behind that post? Um, I've recently been through a bit of a kind of rebrand and a bit of a kind of confidence, a bit of a knock of my confidence. And I know when that happens to me, rather than dwell on it, I take action, even if I don't know what the results of that action are going to be. So on International Women's Day, I just decided something needed to change. And I was like, right, I'm just going to get in front of new people. When you get in front of new people, new things happen, new opportunities open up. And so I put that post on LinkedIn and said, you know, I've got this new thing I'm working on. It's all about change. And I want to start speaking about that with as many different types of people as possible. So I've set myself the target of getting on 100 podcasts. And um, you guys were like, yep, let's talk. Um, and so it's a good example of when you do take action, even if you're afraid of being rejected or, you know, that post could have sat there empty and I would have felt like a bit of an empty, but it didn't. And, and here we are. And that's really... Um quite nerve-wracking yeah. putting yourself out like that but the um doing a sort of a, a bit of read up of things we'll talk about throughout this episode here is you've been through a number of periods of change yeah and i know you know no novice into uh putting yourself out there and seeing what happens because it's the only way really i mean i'd say it here only really to make any progress or learn from it I'd say yeah and we all face adversity all of us doesn't matter yeah. what kind of background we've got and we can take a year to recover from a knock or we can take a weekend you know and yeah. I uh, sometimes have a good old cry about something bad that's happened and then go right now what what am I going to yeah. do what action am I going to do and it, I, you know we can blame other people when things go wrong in business or in life or we can say right what responsibility am I taking for what happens next? So, you know, I'm big on like radical responsibility, right? You know, yeah. other people impact on our lives, but I am responsible for what I do and how I show up. Yeah, I love that. I saw a sign in an office once, and I, I'm going to get the words wrong, <laughs> <clears throat> but it's uh, something which um, I live by and have lived by for years is a lot of things, so much can happen around you that you have no control of. Yeah. 
uh, or things people do things or circumstances happen that you can't you just can't influence it yeah. you can't control but what you can control is your attitude when you get yeah. out of bed each day and yeah. how you approach that and something can be doom and gloom or it can be an opportunity yeah. and yeah. it's going to be people going to pick that apart yeah. straight away yeah. Yeah. and say oh well where does, is this an opportunity but uh, okay <laughs> let's let's put a little caveat around that you can yeah. make the best of any, uh, any yeah. situation and i think we saw that in covid right you know yeah. one of the most traumatic things to happen to us as yeah. a human race you know for for a long time and some people thrive during that time right yeah. and i think it gets wrapped up in privilege like where you started from to start with and some of that um but it also i think opens up doors for innovation and creativity and how can I do things differently with this new situation that we're all facing and, and we saw people really really do well during that time and other people that just tapped out and said you know it's too much and you know um, and we'll look back on that in years to come I'm sure and really reflect on what it was we chose to do. So you've grown you've grown in as one of six um, in a single parent household you've had big ideas yeah the you've been told you may not um, get into university but you did and you got through yeah. what different opportunities or what changes did that make to your life at that point yeah so I remember the first module we did at uni was called space place and identity right and it blew my mind because when you grow up in an area you think the whole world is like that right and i grew up in forest gate uh stratford like east london where it's a it's a cultural melting pot right and then i went to winchester where it's all old white people right and there was everything closed at eight o'clock and there wasn't much culture and there was and it was a, a nice break from london don't get me wrong and i was very caught up in uni life but it made me reflect on some of the issues that we had back in East London. You know, poverty, how unfair some things were, and um, but also how united young people were. And so my dissertation ended up being on street dance and how street dance helped young people to forge their identity, right? And so with that knowledge, with this lived experience, I then wanted to go back into East London to work with young people. So it very much drove me to go back. You know, some people yeah. go off to uni, they find a better life and, and they're off. Whereas I couldn't wait to come back home and use my skills in a way that would be helpful. And um, what was that way? So I worked for a long time with young people. I, I yeah. come back and I set up a company and I did lots of community engagement projects, art, art projects. I worked with a lot of young offenders or young people at risk of offending, um, all sorts of group, uh, groups, young mums, carers, and then the Olympics came to town and I kind of just got known for being that person that could go into to groups and could be trusted because, you know, there were all these people in suits with all this money, all this investment that was coming into the area. And there was initially, during the bid phase, there was a lot of resistance to that, you know, because we don't like change. You know, and here we were about to host this mega event and, you know, it took a lot of convincing for a lot of communities to see what the benefits might be of the Games. Before we come on to the Olympics part of it, yeah. I'm really interested in the company that you set up, mm. um, working with young people, because there's a perception that you're either a business yeah. and you're there to make money and pay the shareholders, yeah. or you're a charity. Yeah. 
And now you use the uh, the words you set up a business, you yeah. set up a, a company to do yeah, yeah. what you did. Uh, how did that exist, and how did that survive, and, and yeah. you know financially, and to do what it does? I mean, I didn't know a lot about business at all, so yeah. so I di- didn't really know the difference between a sole trader and a company, and and somebody advised me to set up a company rather than to do it as a sole trader, but that. Yeah. That initial company was just me. It, you yeah. know, it, I didn't have any staff. It was me as a freelancer, really. And so yeah. I would get contracts. Um, you know, and, and I at the time there was no social media. I had a website that I'd created, but no one went to it. You know, and so all of the work that I got was through word of mouth or yeah. looking in the papers and seeing opportunities. You know, in, in the job section. Um, so I don't know that I saw it as a business. It was enough to pay my bills and it was enough for me to travel. And that was, you know, I spent so much money in my twenties on travel because that's what lit me up, you know, but I don't think I thought about profit and loss. I don't think I thought about growth. I don't think I knew the difference between having like a lifestyle business or a legacy business. I could have expanded that. Um, I think the world is different now. I, I don't even know what funding is like, you know, so no. a lot of my contracts were government funded, you know, okay. so you were on a day rate, you know, you might do like a 20 day contract over the course of a year and you'd have multiple ones of those and that's a nice livelihood, especially for somebody who sees themselves as an artist, you know. Yeah. Um, but I didn't have much business sense, you know, the money came in and it went back out again, but it was definitely socially driven you know, it it wasn't there to make profit necessarily. So the you just mentioned somebody advised you. Was that a professional advisor or a mate down the pub? No, I think it was a you know when you set up a business, I said, oh, you need to get your tax code, and I think I went to the local place that you get your tax code, and you got a one hour <laughs> session with a tax advisor. You know, I think it was something along the lines of that. Yeah, um, that's pretty commonplace yeah. when when you speak to people who have just started their first business for the first time which is why i asked the question yeah, yeah. is they have an idea that's it yeah. that's where the knowledge of the business stops is yeah. i want to do this but i don't know about tax i don't yeah. do i register that or not yeah, yeah. that yeah. um how do i run my books anything like that and it's pretty consistent um in that you just had an aspiration of something you wanted to do which is yeah. fantastic um, I'm making the assumption that business isn't around at the moment. Well, do you know, I've, <coughs> I've, that company is has always been the company. It's been yeah. the umbrella company for everything. So that so the actual company still is around and yeah. has followed you through. Yeah. Great. We'll come back to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so you was running a series of projects within yeah. the East London community. Yeah. Um, and sort of picking up bits of contract. And you just mentioned that. We then had the 2012 yeah, Olympics, yeah, and you got involved in that, which um, to me sounds like a massive opportunity, a yeah. massive uh, project to get involved in. Uh, what was that? How'd that go? Well, it's interesting because I had never really been into sport before, right? Yeah. I'd seen, I think I'd seen the Olympics because I liked gymnastics and ice skating, so that was my reference to the Olympics. You know, yeah. never at all interested in it, and I didn't understand the scale of of the operation and what goes on it's not just you know two weeks in the summer you know I started working on the games around 2004 which they called the pre-bid stage so this is when London was just thinking about you know uh, bidding for the games 
Um, so in the early days, it was very much speaking to community groups about the prospect of the games coming and getting them involved when the IOC came over to do a visit to make sure there was lots of sports activities going on to prove that it would be a good location. And I think because of that, I just got this kind of reputation of, you know, somebody that could do facilitation and consulting with local people that sounded like them, that knew, you know, the, the geography and the different cultures that were there. And, you know, I started doing stuff with the architects and um, I can remember doing stuff with the Mayor of London and it just escalated, you know. I was doing stuff with the Met Police, I was doing stuff with Cobra, you know, and I learned all this stuff about how London operates, you know, and all the emergency plans and, you know, it just escalated from being about people my love of people to you know my love of London and and you know how do we I think the thing for me was how do we make sure Londoners benefit from the games and not just everybody else and so when it comes to the volunteer program for example they needed to get 70,000 volunteers and they had like half a million applications but most of those applications were from sports fanatics from elsewhere in the country so if those people had been put through, it would have been a workforce that were white, predominantly male and middle-aged. And so if you think about the demographic of London, it's young, it's vibrant, it's diverse. And so there was a massive job to do to inspire those people to volunteer so that they could get the benefit of it, you know? And that's what drove me was to not just have these big mega companies come in and for us to have two weeks of great sport, but to make sure that there was a legacy beyond that and that in people's memories, they could go, I was part of that. That's that. I can, I can see like where you've gone from like just one person working in small groups yeah. to all this interaction, yeah. uh, being quite pivotal, pivotal, that, I can't even say the word, <laughs> pivotal, yeah. get that word out, <clears throat> to all of it. The, uh, so starting in 2004, so you've literally got eight years yeah. Uh, of involvement and we get yeah. up towards the event uh, you've been involved in um, sort of finding these volunteers uh, representing London all different areas mm. of London and everything involved in that yeah um, the by the time you get to the actual day of the yeah, yeah. sort of the event itself and the Olympics have started off yeah. that must have been amazing for you it was and I took the decision about 18 months out I got offered a job working for a local authority so a proper official job full-time job yeah. as Olympic development manager yeah. and so I did 18 months working for this uh, local this is authority. in the run-up to the event yeah, yeah. and um, we got you know 200 local volunteers we got uh, I think three million pound worth of investment and it was an outer London borough so to get that kind of investment when they weren't um, one of the host boroughs was pretty impressive and I was so buzzing I was so yeah. buzzing we got some free tickets to the uh, dress rehearsal of the opening ceremony so I took a big group <laughs> of volunteers I took some of my family with me it was amazing and then the, the opening ceremony I, I watched with my partner at the time we were in a big park with it on a live screen I've never felt prouder in my whole entire life and then the next day I went into work I was buzzing and my yeah. boss went oh can you come in the office a minute and I went in the office and said I don't know how to tell you this he said but we're making you redundant and I was like oh, are you kidding me so the games hadn't even started yet it was the first day of the games and I'd just been given this bombshell that my job was over um, and I was six, six months pregnant with my daughter Rose at the time as well. Because uh. what had happened in those 18 months is I'd embedded myself in that local authority 
and had really enjoyed working with the same set of people and I actually thought I'd end up staying there and doing their cultural programming or you know something within that organization because the contract was um it wasn't a short-term contract it was a permanent contract um and so it was like the past eight years were for nothing because I couldn't even enjoy the games the um at that so many questions (laughs) so when you the is it as brutal as it sounds in that the the events the the olympic games had started that's it that's that was all they were interested in and you'd served your purpose at that point is it as brutal as that or is there more i mean it depends on tangled web yeah i think it's probably a little bit more uh I don't know. I think the fact that I was pregnant played a part because local authorities at the time were going through restructures. They were the one that I worked for was turning all of their cultural services into um, a trust. So there was cost savings. So mm-hmm. you know my job had officially finished, even though the Paralympics hadn't happened. You know there was still so much stuff that was about legacy. Um, so I thought that even if I was to be made redundant, it would be six months after after the games or a year, so that we could tie up all of the the, the projects that we'd started. Um, and so I think the fact that I'd told them that I was preg- pregnant fast tracked that move. But obviously, I've got no evidence of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so. But I don't think they I don't think they got the impact of it having worked on something for eight years to not even be given the grace to enjoy it and then be told. No. You know, and I lived in Stratford. I couldn't avoid it. It was literally if I opened up my balcony doors, I could hear the music and the fireworks and the. So you know, I, I think I had a bit of a mental breakdown during that time because it was so in my face. The um, you've just covered where I was sort of heading is like yeah. the personal impact. Is that um, I th- that's the first time anything like that had actually happened to you for something you'd been yeah. spending so much time in and building up. I think when you're a contractor or a freelancer, funding comes and goes. So yeah. you always have multiple things going on. So if one thing comes to an end, it's sad, but it's not the end of the world. But because I'd the games were so pivotal, um, it took a long time to recover from that. And the fact that I was pregnant as well. And so part of wanting to stay in that company or that organisation was for security because I was about mm. to become a mum. And so, yeah, it was really difficult. So with, with that security being taken away, um, the you had, what, quick maths in my head. <laughs> <laughs> three months, <clears throat> yeah. uh, three months um, before yeah. due date. Yeah. The... Uh, how did you replace if at all that security or what basically what was the next sort of year yeah. or two like it was really hard uh, my daughter's dad uh, is an actor so he didn't have secure work it caused mm. a lot of tension between us two um i got statutory maternity pay so that helped um but as soon as that was over i had to go to the job center and i'd never had to go to the job center in my life and that was soul destroying um I lost a lot of confidence because I was, I think I was quite embarrassed. I was quite like, I had this like shame of, oh, I used to be this somebody and now I'm a nobody. And you lose a lot of your identity becoming a mum anyway. And so it was just this confounding thing of like, who am I? If I'm not working, if I'm not doing the stuff that I'm really good at and I'm at home with a baby all day, you know. The, um, 
I can't relate to that. Mm. Um, the part where losing your identity is becoming a mum who mm. has a, you know, a job to fill, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Um, the talk me through that impact, mm. that mindset. I think every time I went to the job centre, um, they'd they'd say, "Oh, have you been job searching?" And of course, I've been job searching, right? But when you're a mum and you're responsible for paying the bills, you can't just take any job, right? You know, I, I'm not work shy. I've worked for every, you know, kind of industry. I've worked in pubs. I've worked in factories. You know, I'm not job shy. But there's certain expenses that you have once you become an adult. You've got to have somewhere to live. You've got to put food on the table. You've got to clothe your kids and all of those. And so I'd be put forward to kind of go for these retail jobs at like 24 grand a year. And I'd been on 56 or something. And they'd say, oh, we found this job. We think this would be great for you. You know, you could fit it around childcare. And I'd go, well, it's 24 grand. How am I supposed to live on that? Oh, well, if you're going to be picky, you know. And it's just like, there's this level of like, just not understanding where I was coming from and so my frustration I would get so frustrated going into the job centre every week and I think that is um, what inevitably led me to starting a, starting a new business starting a new venture because I realised the restrictions of having a baby meant that whatever job I got would have to be double my previous income to be able to cover childcare yeah. and so you know I, I looked at what I'd done previously and, and you know I knew that whatever I did had to be like remote. It had to be online. And if you think about it, this is like 10 years ago, people weren't really running online businesses in the way they do now. So it, it was quite unique. But again, that pressure forced me to be creative and find something that worked for me. Yeah, and the that's where I sort of enter is the, the point of almost like a breaking point yeah. that as you just sort of alluded to there, sort of pushed you into starting a business again. Yeah. What was that business? Uh, it's called Two Fat to Run. Yeah. Um, and it's a plus size fitness movement. Uh, it's a yeah. global movement. The website's been seen by 20 million women worldwide. Yeah. It's had clients all over the world. You know, what that business did has blown my mind. Um, now, the I've looked at the website and I've looked at some <laughs> of the videos and I've, the, um, there's two parts. Part of me sits there and you, you look at you think, there's a business behind that? Yeah, yeah. But there is. Yeah. So what's the, you know, well, actually, first question was, yeah, yeah. why? So I've been running to lose weight for years, right? And I always used to kind of do it in secret because I didn't want to join a running club because I was already fat and slow. And quite often, if you run on main roads, or in the parks, people would shout silly stuff out, or you know. So I'd I'd run of a night time or in really secluded places, and but occasionally I'd sign up for a race because a race would push me to train, right? Yeah. And so I did this race in Victoria Park, and when I got there, I realised I'd made a big mistake because it was only about forty people there. So I was like, oh no, it's not a big fun run; it's actually a proper race, and they were all really slim and really fast. And it was a ten k race, and I came last. And when I got to the finish line, they'd packed up. The finish line wasn't there. The water bottles had gone. And initially, I thought it was funny. And then I cried a little bit because I was a bit embarrassed. And then I thought, I can't be the only person like this. And I thought, what, what about if I start blogging about it? Um, and this was back in the day when MySpace was a thing. And I used to sometimes blog on MySpace. Um, and I thought, 
yeah, I could write about this and maybe there are other women who feel the same. And so I literally went home and Googled like how to set up a blog and I got free WordPress thing and I started blogging and within about four weeks I had like followers all over the world and it just built momentum. Um, But I was doing that while working on the games. So it was completely anonymous because it was a conflict of interest with my job. Um, I was known as Fatty Must Run. I didn't pop (laughs) photos up, you know, and I grew this global movement without anybody ever knowing who I was. Um, And so when I got pregnant, I stopped running. After having Rose, I couldn't really run that much. And so it was there and I had all these followers and I thought, well, maybe I can turn that into a business. The, and, and that's that, what I did. The, and I just want to reiterate that part. So you you basically had a hobby, something you did on the side yeah. that you was doing anyway and had been doing for a few years. Yeah. And you re-looked, I'm putting words in your mouth yeah, here, yeah. so do correct me <laughs> if I'm going off. But you re-looked at that at yeah. that point when you're trying to find work, think, can I turn this into a business? Can I make money yeah. out of this? Um, so how did you? So the job centre had this scheme where they would allow you to apply for a loan to start up a business and you get a little bit of business support around it. I think it was a thousand pounds and my first application to that was to do a coaching business, an online coaching business to help people train for their first 5k or whatever and they hated that as an idea, they didn't (laughs) understand how it would work so they said no and then uh, the advisor said what if you sold t-shirts? you know, like branded t-shirts. So I was like, all right, I'll give that a go. So I put it back in, you know, it's going to be a clothing brand. It's going to have funny slogans on it and stuff like that. And it got accepted. So I spent 500 pound on a website and 500 pound on branded merchandise. And that's how I first started making money. Uh, So it it did make money. You did sell those. Yeah, I mean, and actually the t-shirts and the hoodies, um, and we ended up doing bags and buffs and medals and all sorts of stuff. It actually was great as a marketing tool because women would wear it at a race and somebody else would go, oh, that's a funny shirt. Where'd you get that from? Um, And so the T-shirts helped people to see it as a movement. They would wear it with pride. It would start conversations. Um, So actually it was genius. Um, But the coaching is where the money was because, you know, I could have a training group of women that want to run their first marathon and they could be all over the world. Yeah. You know, and that's all done with digital. It's all email sequences, videos, you know, Facebook groups. You know, there's no cost. Whereas the T-shirts, there was always a cost. Materials, but also shipping it out, having somewhere to store them. So the T-shirts become a massive headache to, to you know. But the coaching is where I really came alive because I love people. Yeah. And the and this is a profitable business literally it uh, has been um i'm about to this is like breaking news i'm about to close that business um i think the pandemic broke that business yeah um it's high it was a six-figure business you know i was getting flown out all around the world running races and so my profile drove clients and then when the pandemic happened i wasn't doing any media i wasn't doing any races i wasn't doing any travel so i had very little to talk about Um, All of the companies that I was partnering with, Garmin, Adidas, all of these big brands, they just stopped working with people like me. And so the business became dependent on the women themselves paying for everything. And so it used to be like a 50-50 split. 50% of the income used to come from the users and 50% used to come from sponsors and speaking gigs and other things. When all of that dropped away, it became about the women paying for it 
at a time when they were in crisis. So a lot of my women are on low incomes, they're carers, they're working the NHS, and so they stopped spending money on themselves. So it became this double whammy during the game, uh, during the um, pandemic where it just stopped being viable as a right. business. And it's right. a shame because there's so much interest in it as a brand, but I don't have the energy anymore to keep that business going. Yes, like so many and such a shame, but it just goes to show that something can come out of nowhere yeah. and a business that as you just said had so much coverage and sponsorship and doing you know doing so well yeah. for you yeah. um just gets the rug pulled out from yeah. under it yeah. but the uh one of the thing, well two th two things one of the things that you just mentioned there were about speaking gig to use mm. that uh sort of use that terminology yeah the would you agree i've got word it that way <laughs> that it's important to have a personal brand and utilize your personal brand when you're building up a business like that how, how did that help the business it really helped to get it off the ground yeah once it was established it actually worked against me yeah and i spent a lot of time trying to distance myself from the brand so that it could work by itself um, and so i think this is the difference between having a legacy business and a lifestyle business yeah. and interestingly the business that i'm growing now I know in the future I can step away from it and somebody else could buy it and run it because it's not dependent yeah. on me as an individual. So your, your personal brand is always going to be important, but it doesn't always have to be front and centre of your um, venture. But it can be really helpful if you've got a dynamic personality to get it off the ground and to get like PR and media. I mean, two-factor on because of its title, people love talking about it. So the Daily yeah. Mail, I was in the Daily Mail nearly every week because yeah. they love that story of, you know, fat runner, da, 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 because it's very like headliney. Um, and so if you are media friendly and you've got a story, then people will, you know, help get you in front of people. I think I've, I've been in like, I don't know, 50 countries in, in like magazines and on the telly and stuff like that. You can't get that kind of coverage paying for it. Yeah. And it's the story, it's my personal story that helped, you know, to grow that business. How did, um, how do you feel about that? It's a double-edged sword because I've done lots of things in my life and still I go to meetings and people go, oh, you're that woman that, who does the fat running stuff. And so I've been pigeonholed, you know, so I, I had like 10 years work before that and I've done a whole heap of stuff since and people still remember that brand and that's one of the reasons that I'm closing it. Um, so we've got the London Marathon coming up. We're going to have one last hurrah. We've got loads of women <laughs> running that. And then that brand is going to die. And, and I feel mixed emotions around that. I probably held on for too long. I should have closed it temporarily during, during the pandemic. Um, but it didn't feel right to do that. So I did loads of stuff for free during the pandemic. We did something called Thrive Inside that was totally free for people to, to exercise inside their own homes. Um, but also the running world is different now. So 12 years ago when I set it up, there wasn't Park Run, there wasn't This Girl Can, all of these campaigns that, you know, Nike hadn't done their plus size range, you know, so it was a very yeah. different place. So I feel like I've done my job with that business. Yeah. You know, there's something about like, there, there's good to become, uh, to come from goodbyes. And sometimes we hold on to things for too long. And I think I did for a little bit. I've held on to that maybe for, three years too long no um the you've got obviously you've just mentioned you've got a daughter rose yeah and she uh is getting into sort of the media mm. um market if we say yeah, that yeah. youtubing <laughs> the and 
it's interesting that listening to you speak and understanding that you've you've been through a media journey mm. uh you've had that business we'll come on uh, to where you are now in a moment but the yeah. uh you've been through that cycle of you've been the face out there and yeah. your daughter's um to a dream, you know following in your footsteps yeah. albeit different technology yeah when you started two factor run it was a blog post and you used yeah. the myspace and technology yeah, there yeah. um i'll reword this question actually what advice would you give to young people you t uh, such as your daughter who see a career where they are the focal point they are yeah. the person that people are watching yeah um and they hope to make money out of doing that oh it's such it's such a difficult question i i think that all young people need to be media savvy both as the consumers of media but also as the producers of media there are more producers on this planet than there are consumers yes and that's wasn't the case 10 years ago and so understanding that every interaction we have is building a story of who we are we're creating a personal brand even if we're not on social media we're still creating a personal brand personal brand in my view is what people say about you behind your back right it's yeah. your reputation it's yeah. it's word of mouth marketing it's all of that's referrals it's being known for something and so all the way through your career whether you're in the media or not you're going to be building up a track record of work and you can use that to tell a story and to build a narrative like i feel like i am or you could just have a life that's really disjointed doing lots of different things and no one really gets you and so, you know, the more media savvy you can get, the more you can be mindful of how people view you, what the lens is, what the narrative is. You know, we know that people buy from people that they like and trust. And so that small skill, and I don't think it's a difficult skill, it's just understanding that everything you do is being viewed through a lens and in many cases it's being captured so when we meet new people first thing we do we jump onto either linkedin or google and we have a look you yeah. know what what does it say it used to be that we would ask somebody oh do you know do you know such and such what do you think now we look at the digital assets the trail the digital trail before anything else and See, so i've been in a school uh, talking to students about employability yeah. and i've used that very example as an employer, yeah. the first thing you look at is you look through their social media yeah. history and you, you make a judgment call as yeah. to what that person is like. And I got some quite heated responses from the classroom. It was like, that's my personal social media. It's not, is it? No, it really isn't. It really isn't. And, and the great thing about that is you can build a business just from being yourself. But yeah. that's the trick. You've got to find a way of being yourself. And you can ramp that up and you can ramp it down, right? So yeah. a good example of this is people always go, kind of say to me, oh, you really like animal print, don't you, Julie? Right? And I've never really thought about it, but I just have a lot of clothes that are animal print. <laughs> and so now I just build it into my brand, you know? And, and then I build methodologies around it, you know, like can a leopard change its spots? Oh, let's have a conversation <laughs> about that. You know, and so if you're known for something, you can amplify that and you can ramp it up and you can make that part of your brand, yeah. you know? Um, and I always love going out to my audience and say, you know, when you think about me, what are the words that come up for you? And so if people are saying things over and over again, do more of that. 
you know, because it's the people that know you most really know who you truly are. And sometimes we lose ourselves, you know, and so one of my metrics in business is integrity. You know, I, I cover income, impact, influence, insight and integrity. And the integrity piece is really challenging when you also want to make money. The, um, it's something that we have here mm. as a business. So behind you go business forms is business data group. And we, you know, that's the business that pays for all this. Yeah. And the, it is very important for us in that we need to make money. We need to make a profit to sustain yeah. the business, but sleep at night. Yeah. And there is, uh, I, you know, I'd like to think there it's, it's not so difficult. The, if, so long as you're transparent about yeah. it, this is how we make our money. Yeah. This is what we're charging for. This is the money we're making, yeah. you know, for it. Um, there's nothing else. Yeah. There's no sort of like trying any hidden extras or yeah. whatever things that, things that leave a sour taste in people's yeah. mouths where, hang on a minute, I wasn't expecting that for you, yeah. whatever it might be. Just yeah. do those and then profit's not a dirty word. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The so you've been through a few changes <laughs> and I think uh, and what I uh, like is when you look at sort of your first business that well, which carried on yeah. but your first business you you pick something that you enjoy doing mm. and you found a way of making a living out of it yeah um, you had the moment uh, moment eight years but you had that period of time with the olympics which give yeah. you a like, took the rug out from underneath yeah. you um but, but then you took something you was doing and enjoyed doing and made a living out of it yeah uh the covid took the rug out from underneath you again um what have you found now that you enjoy doing because i'm, I'm going to pick it up there's going to be some <laughs> consistent pattern here that you can make a living out of doing I love people. I've said it over and over again. I love yeah. people. I like all sorts of people. You know, I've, I think I'm very privileged in as much as I've rubbed shoulders with billionaires and I've sat in like drug dens. You know, like I've, I've got the spectrum of people. I've worked in prisons. I've, I see all sorts of people. When I used to yeah. work in a pub, one of the things I loved about working in a pub as a barmaid, you get the postman in the morning, then you get the bin men, then you get the teachers, then you get the, you like, you get every walk of life, and then you get like the, the city workers, you know, you get everybody, and you actually realize you spot patterns, right? I've worked with politicians and I've worked with young offenders. They both behave as badly as each other, right? There are good and bad. And many in, will agree with In that, everybody. Yes. Yeah. And so I love people, but what I love more than anything is helping just ordinary, normal people to do extraordinary things. And I think business is an incredible venture to do that, to, to challenge the status quo, to change um, like the trajectory of your life, you know, to, to increase your life prospects and your kids' life prospects. Once you become a parent, that's all you want. You want your kids to have a better life than you. And I think yeah. business gives you a viable option for doing that. Yeah, there's, um, there's a talk by Alan Watts. Um, I love listening to some of Alan Watts' uh, talks. The, uh, and it basically the subject matter of it is, is what if money was no object? Mm -hmm. So if you um, have a business you want to do or something you want to do, whatever, whether it's employed or your own mm -hmm. venture, um, pick something you enjoy doing. Yeah. Because um, oh, you don't even have to watch listen to a talk now. <laughs> pick something you enjoy doing uh, because you will instinctively and naturally become good at it. Yeah. And then if you instinctively and naturally become good at it, 
people will pa- want to pay you yeah. to do that for them. Yeah. Uh, and I use an example that I um, know somebody who makes a living painting Warhammer figurines. Now, many will look at that and think, well, it's just a hobby. Yeah, yeah. But he makes a living out of it. Yeah. It really, you can, anything. Yeah. If, if you're good at it, mm. there's a career to be made out so, of it. But I would also challenge that because yeah. you don't have to be good at it. Right, so I, I wrote a book called Leading from the Back that was yeah. about being rubbish at things. Right, I am not a good runner, and yet I built a global business around running. Right, you just have to be where other people are and help them where they currently are. Right, so I, I've run six marathons, so some people would argue that I am a good runner, I'm just incredibly stubborn. Right, um. But there is something about we aspire to be the best all the time. And because of that aspiration to be the best, not everyone can shop in Prada, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna... Primark does really well. Primark's not yeah. the best quality clothes, but there's a market for it, right? So so this thing about you've got to be the best at things to do well in them, I really disagree because I think that keeps people stuck. And I think if you've just got enough, I, I, you, I, I don't think you have to be the best do you at things think, to... Well, what, uh, was the business because... Was the business running or was the business motivating? Because I would turn around and say, um, playing devil's advocate yeah, yeah, here, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that your business wasn't about the running. Your, the running was the product. People don't buy an Apple MacBook mm. because... Oh, Please don't sue me. Apple. <laughs> People don't buy an Apple MacBook because it is the, the best. best laptop. Yeah. They yeah. buy it for the experience. Yeah. The so I would argue potentially that the, the ladies for Two Factor Run didn't come mm. to you for the running. Mm. They came to you for the motivation, inspiration, and community that it gave. Yeah. So you wasn't actually your business wasn't running. Yeah. So you wasn't the best at running. Yeah. And it doesn't matter because that's not your product. Yeah. Your product is what you actually delivered mm. to them. The running was a byproduct. But I think, I, I agree with you, but I think when it comes to, particularly micro businesses, right? We go into business with an idea and then we're told, go off and research it, understand your ideal market, understand what your USP is. And you go away and do some research or you bump into someone who does something similar to yeah. you and you go, oh, what's the point? What's the point? You know, they're just as good as me, or I can never be like that person who's been doing it for 10 years, and we give up. But I think if you can find a unique spin on it, or you can find people that trust yeah. you over and above somebody else, it's not about being the best, it's about being accessible to the people that need you in the way that you are. Yeah. Right? I know people work with me as a coach because I sound like them, not because I'm the best coach. They, they trust me because I speak the language. I speak in very ordinary pedestrian language. I don't use big words unless I have to. And I think that is a unique selling point for me. You know, I, I speak to ordinary people in the language that ordinary people use. And so am I the best business coach in the world? Am I the best life coach in the world? No. But I am unique enough and have enough skill and knowledge to get my clients where they want to go. But I'm not the best. And I'm okay with that because that takes the pressure off of me. I'm human. Yeah. You know, I'm learning. It's a process. Yeah. No, I can I can take that. The um, so you've just mentioned that you do coaching now. Mm-hmm. Um, you've also um, published some books. Mm-hmm. The uh, so your move your 
going back to right at the very beginning mm. where you put a LinkedIn post out um, to speak a podcast, to yeah. get yourself out there, putting yourself out there in the firing line is a strong <laughs> word, but literally putting your head above the parapet yeah. and literally saying, I'm here. Yeah. So you are here. Um, some would say um, talking on TED Talk is putting your head above the parapet. Yeah. Um, putting pen to paper is putting your head above the parapet. Yeah. Um, the what um, your head's well and truly there now. <laughs> what is you know? Talk me through these past couple of months and this time now. What yeah. is it that life like for you? So during the pandemic, I had my best financial year ever. I made a lot of money and I worked incredibly hard and I really grew my audience. Lots of people were coming to me because I had experience of running an online business before the world needed to run an online business. So I worked incredibly hard and made a load of money. And then afterwards I started questioning, what do I want? Because for such a long time, it was getting out of poverty was the drive. And then once I'd got out of poverty, I was like, well now what, right? Um, and I think as a result of that, I had a little bit of burnout, a little bit of you know, um, adrenal fatigue, and I took a step back from the online world. And I questioned what I really wanted to do. And then I got COVID. So October the year before last, I got COVID and I ended up in hospital and I thought I was gonna die. And I can remember, it was like two in the morning, I'm on this uh, hospital trolley and I wasn't scared even though I thought I was going to die, I wasn't scared, I was angry. I was angry with myself for not doing all the things I promised myself I would do. And it's like, you know, oh, when, you know, when my daughter's gone to school or when I've got this amount of money or I was potting off things. So even though I'm ambitious, even though I've done lots of things, there were so many things I wanted to do and I hadn't quite got round to. And I was annoyed with myself. And one of the things that I wanted to do uh, was to set up some kind of foundation or charity or do some work with young people because it's a big cause of mine and I hadn't done anything really for a whole decade that had impacted on that on that community. And so when I got out of hospital and recovered, um, it was just by chance I got an email from a, from a charity called Street Child and they said, oh, do you fancy running the Sierra Leone Marathon? And I was like, I'm t- only two weeks out of hospital from COVID. It's like, timing's not great. But I went to this event and I met them and I didn't realise the work that they do. And they work to give young people access to education around the world, to fairly give young people, you know, in other countries, a better chance at life through education. So completely in alignment with my values. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll run the marathon. So I took a team of my clients, we raised £20,000 and I'm now a... A partner with that with that charity um, and being in Africa changed everything for me I'd been to Africa before but this time seeing the work that they do uh, a lot of their work is around entrepreneurship so they support uh, predominantly women to start micro businesses and that money then goes back into the education system and I was completely inspired just by the level of hope and graft and like can-do attitude you know in some really desperate situations that I thought actually I, I want to do more work that is about change that's a bigger than just oh I'm a business coach or I'm a life coach like those labels mean nothing like my mission is to help more ordinary people do extraordinary things and so I knew that for me to do that I had to change some things about my life I'd been living in London for too long I wanted to get out of my flat 
entrepreneurship means that you have loads of money sometimes and then not a lot of money the next time and that's hard to get a mortgage and so there was all this stuff going on I was really in like flux what do I do next and I got offered a job working with another company that had this big mission and it was to go in and build a division of their company that was six months ago two weeks ago I got made redundant from that company and I'd moved my whole life from London to a beautiful house, million pound house in the countryside based on that salary. And now I don't have that salary. And so it's one of those rugs away again. Mm. And it's like, here we go again, Julie. Another moment of you're gonna have to sort this out. Mm. And rather than what I've done in, in the past, which is jump to my own rescue and I really took time, and it was probably only a week, but for me, that's a lot of time. I sat with myself and I journaled and I went on long walks and I really thought about what is it I want? What is it I can do with the next decade of my, of my life? And so, I, so I, I come up with this brand, it's called The Year to Change, and it's all about challenging people's perception of time, how much time they've still got left on this planet and what they can do within that time, whether it's in their personal life or whether it's with businesses or whether it's in companies and organisations. Because we have this messed up belief that change takes ages or that the changes we make are not big enough to make a difference. And I, and I challenge both of those things. And so literally in the last 21 days... I've built a business and I've started monetizing it and I've started getting out talking about it and I've never felt so in alignment you know and, and you know as a, as a single mum sole responsibility for looking after my daughter financially I'm owed 40 grand from this company that I've been made redundant from you know it's hard to pick yourself back up over and over again but I'm not focusing on the money I'm focusing on the mission and looking at what I already have I have a brilliant audience of people that support me I've got a track record in doing this work and I'm not afraid to go out and talk about it and so that's a position of privilege right that's where I check my privilege and go actually you've got you've got an internet connection you can make videos you can build programs you've got all of this knowledge because you've been doing it for a decade stop complaining you know don't say oh, I'll launch this in six months do it in six days and so literally that's what I did I built out new programs did a free challenge last week of 250 um individuals the doors open today i know i've made like 16 sales this morning you know and and there's something about it doesn't need to take forever to build something the with the amount of time when you think about the right from the early age of people like us don't do that mm. and the times you've had the rug pulled out from underneath you and you found a way to keep the lights on doing something that you enjoy how that's a few knocks now not everybody can take a few knocks yeah how do you or why do you keep doing what you're doing it's a good question i think as we get older our tolerance for those kind of knocks gets lower and lower because we've realized we're running out of time right you hear people whose businesses go bust in their 50s or 60s and they go well i literally don't have another 40 years to build another business like that but the benefit of having that experience is it doesn't take as long the second time round. and so this is about building in resilience right one of my really dear friends she spent 10 years building this business it was just about to go out for investment and she got pancreatic cancer 
You know, it's a death sentence. Um, and so all of these things that make you realise that now, today, you can make decisions today that will impact both positively and negatively on the rest of your life. If you're brave enough to do it, if you're willing to take the fear of judgment, if you're willing to make a mistake. Right? I went and played golf with my friends at the weekend. I've never played golf before. And I've got this list of things I've never done before that I'm doing. And so we went to play golf. And in my head, I was like, what's the worst thing you could, that could happen? It's like, you look like an idiot. Literally, I get to the first tee. It had been raining all morning. Get to the first tee, swung the golf for the, uh, the club for the very first time, missed the ball, slipped over, and fell on my hands and knees into a pile of mud. Right? I've never laughed so much in my life. Right? And it's just like this metaphor of you think you know what the worst thing that could happen could happen. And actually, it goes beyond that. And actually, you know, Saturday afternoon, it was the best day ever with me and my mates because it was the tonic that we all needed just to laugh, you know? And, and so when you put yourself out there, you get all of these unexpected things happen that you wouldn't if you were sitting there going, oh, the, the environment's not right. I'm, I don't know enough yet. I don't have enough money. I, I'm not prepared. You don't get all of those benefits of trialing things and, and making mistakes and being able to rectify them quickly. Yeah, most people launch a business that take two or three years to launch a business. They have the idea for at least a year before they actually take action. It's such a waste. The um, uh, previous guest, Dwayne Jackson, used the analogy, if you're travelling from London to Leeds, you don't wait for every set of traffic lights to be green before you set on your journey. You just start going. Yeah. And that is so true. Yeah. The You just alluded to your drive. Um, I'm, I'm my words, drive. Yeah. Uh, has changed now to what it was. Yeah. Uh, where you mentioned before it was just getting money just yeah. getting income yeah. uh, what is your drive what is your to use another word motivation what drives you forward when, when I was younger and people used to say oh what do you want to be when you grow up I used to say I don't care I just don't want to be poor right? I used yeah. to literally say that and what I've realised now is poverty isn't just about money you know, it's about that, what are you lacking? That's what poverty mm. is about. It's not just about money and resources, although it feels like that when you've got none of it. Mm. But it's what other resources do I have? Do I have time? Do I have skill? Do I have a network, right? And the problem is when you financially don't have a lot of money, all of those other things are impacted on as well. And so I still am driven by making a lot of money because I want to show other people that it's possible. I'm not driven by being a seven-figure business owner or making my first billion or any of those things, but I'm interested in, in playing, being playful with money and, and learning more about how you invest it, how you leverage it, how you make it grow, but also how you give, right? So there's a lot of kind of in the coaching world, you talk about be, do and have, right? We spend so much of our life trying to be someone and then we spend a massive block of our time doing everything right and then if we're lucky we have a little sliver when we're retired where we can sit back and enjoy everything that we've got right? everything we have yeah. i think if we think about be do have in a more like current what who am i today right be who do i want to be today um what do i want to do today what do i already have that i could use and what can i give so rather than just be do and have be do have give there's always something you can give to people whether that's a word of encouragement whether it's a free place on one of your programs there's always more than you need that you can give away always yeah it's it's been really uh, fascinating chatting with you the um as we've been talking 
uh, I'm going to use the expression survivor mm. in that, uh, for you because my mum was a single parent. She had three boys, so I can't mm. think of anything worse. <laughs> the, uh, and when the rug was taken out from below her feet, um, like one particular, well, a few times, literally losing the home, yeah. um, she survived and she provided. And it's been great talking to you. And uh, the reason I sort of reiterate of when the rug is taken out, you find a way. Yeah. Uh, and without a doubt, you are. You, you're surviving and the you're providing for mm. Rose. Um, and I, I just, as we've been talking, I was just thinking back to my childhood, my growing up and my mm. own mother being a single mum and what she's yeah. done is really inspirational. You, uh, you used the you said earlier like you know don't use the word inspirational <laughs> because it may create something different or like and yeah. you, as an excuse but um, there's times where it's relevant and yeah. I feel it's relevant here and yeah. I would say that uh, about yourself so yeah. it's been fantastic speaking with you Thank I've you. loved it it's great it's a nice way of reflecting actually well, I hope you enjoyed this interview uh, please remember to hit follow on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. It really helps the algorithm and push this podcast up through the rankings. And also leave some feedback. I uh, look forward to bringing you the next episode of Drive. Until next time, this is Drive, the small business podcast from UKBF.